Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Well, today's panel is Opportunity Zone Investing or Opportunity Zone Benefits for high net worth investors. My three panelists here today, I'm going to introduce them very briefly. We only have 20 minutes, so it's going to be kind of rapid fire, but Jay Frank joining us from Santa Monica, California. He's president of Cantor Fitzgerald Capital and co-head of their real estate investment management business. Scott Hawksworth joining me here today from Chicago, Illinois. He's co-founder of multifamilyinvestor.com and host of the Multifamily Investor Podcast, which is a resource for passive high net worth real estate investors. And Rob Johnson also joining us today. He's here from Austin, Texas. Rob is head of wealth management for Realized. They are a platform for investment property wealth management, and they specialize in 1031 DSTs and of course, Opportunity Zones. So gentlemen, I want to start with uh, Scott Hawksworth first. And Scott, the reason why I want to start with you is because multifamily is by far and away the most popular sector for Opportunity Zone investing. In fact, nine of the 12 qualified opportunity funds that are partnering with us on today's event are multifamily funds, or at least have a very strong multifamily component. So Scott, why do you like multifamily as an asset class for high net worth investors? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I like multifamily as an asset class for a number of reasons, but I think the biggest reason is we have an ongoing housing shortage in this country. We are underbuilt and that creates tremendous opportunity for high net worth accredited investors. And that underlines what you were just mentioning about the number of funds that have multifamily. And there's a statistic that I I like to point out here, and I have it right here. And this is according to a recent report from the National Association of Realtors. We have an underbuilding gap of 5.5 to 6.8 million housing units. And that has been ongoing since about 2001. Again, that's a mismatch between supply and demand. So there are these funds that are addressing this issue. But even with all of that activity, the demand is not going away and the supply is just not meeting it. And you see this all over the country. So I think when we're talking about the opportunity for return, it's really tremendous. And that's why I like multifamily. Good. Uh, Let's turn to Rob next. A lot of real estate investors traditionally are very familiar with 1031s. It's been a traditional tax advantage vehicle for high net worth real estate investors for decades and decades and decades. Can you compare and contrast the Section 1031 exchange with Opportunity Zones? What do investors need to know? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we get that frequently from clients who could go either way and they're going to evaluate the considerations and upsides of doing one or the other. So let's talk about the eligible gains. With a QOZ fund, any capital gain, regardless of the asset that generated, that gain can go into a QOZ fund for a 1031 exchange. It's limited to gains from real property held for investment or used in a trade or business. So it's extremely clear one is real estate-based, the other one is going to be any capital gain. The reinvestment of proceeds What's nice about the QOZ fund is you're only going to reinvest the capital gain. You can reinvest the basis, but it's not going to receive the tax benefits. So quite honestly, we discourage a client from doing that. Uh, In the 1031 exchange, you have to reinvest all proceeds. 
both your basis and the gains, and you have to have the same or greater amount of debt through the 1031 exchange. So there are some IRS policies that, that have to be followed. The time to reinvestment with a QOZ fund, you have 180 days, and the gain must be triggered on or before December 31st of 2026. With the 1031 exchange, the, the time constraints can be very onerous. You've got 45 days after the uh, sale of that property to identify what your replacement is going to be, and then 180 days to reinvest. But you are stuck with what you identify in that 45-day period. So if you identify something you don't close on, it's going to blow up your exchange. The replacement asset, qualified opportunity zone funds, you're going to invest 90% of the assets in the QOZ property. Real property must be like kind. So the IRS is going to keep a very close eye on what exactly you use to replace that property. And it has to be the real property designation underneath the IRS. Location of replacement asset, obviously the QOZ is in an opportunity zone. It has to be designated by the, the census. With the 1031 exchange, you could pretty much go in any U.S. state and region that you want. Qualified intermediary or, or QI or an exchange accommodator is going to be required for a 1031 exchange. They have to hold the money. If you don't pass the proceeds onto them from the sale of the property, you'll blow up your 1031 exchange. You don't need a QI in a QOZ transaction. Minimum holding period, the QOZ at least 10 years to achieve the maximum tax benefit with a 1031 exchange. It's really going to be when you you have to have it for a minimum in most cases due to IRS policy in terms of a hold. But after that, you can exit when you find a potential buyer for the property. And the tax on the gain generated by the replacement asset for the QOZ, it's eliminated if held for 10 years, may be eliminated upon the investor's death. With the 1031 exchange, it's due upon the sale of the asset, but they also can qualify with the step-up basis. So those are the main differences with the QOZ versus the 1031. That was a great breakdown there, Rob. Very in-depth, very detailed. Jake, kind of want you to uh, take that and keep going here, comparing and contrasting OZs with 1031s. Jay, at, at Cantor Fitzgerald, I know you have a lot of high net worth accredited investors that you advise on this situation all the time as well. And it, it just like Rob does, how often for you do you find that an opportunity zone investment is better than a 1031? And when should investors selling real estate really consider OZs as opposed to or in as a replacement for a 1031? Yeah, great. And nice job, Rob. Happy to pick up where you left off there. Section 1031 of the tax code it has a lot of complexities to it, right? And you should be talking to, at, first, at a minimum, your CPA or tax attorney, maybe your estate planning attorney, and probably a financial advisor. Opportunity zones take that complexity to the next level. So to the nth degree, there should be that team involved in, in the process because when you are making a decision between one or the other, or don't forget, you can also invest in both simultaneously. It's not always opportunity, but you can. There's a lot of different considerations, not just in terms of investment return, investment time period, horizon, income versus growth, when you're going to get the returns, et cetera, like Rob was touching on, but also it has to do with the client's personal situation, what account that they're holding it in, estate planning needs, what tax bracket they're in, what state they live in. There's a whole bunch of economic considerations, but then there's a whole bunch of human considerations that go into this. The general rule that we refer to when you're kind of comparing a 1031 to an OZ, obviously only for someone selling investment real estate is when they both are in play. An OZ tends to be preferred when the client has a basis in the property they're selling and or a little debt. 
So the more basis they have, the less, less amount of debt they have, the more the opportunity will be attractive. So Jimmy, you bought some land in Dallas, million dollars. It's land, so you don't depreciate it. So your basis is a million. A few years later, you sell for a million and a half and you have no debt. If you do a 1031 exchange, all million and a half would need to go in the exchange to defer 100% of your taxes. With an opportunity zone, you'd be able to take the million dollars of basis out, tax-free, put it in your pocket, diversify it, and only the half million dollars of capital gain would need to go into the opportunity zone fund to defer 100% of your, your tax liability. So in that situation, I'd say 90 plus percent of the time, an investor that's informed and has good advice, it would be looking at an opportunity zone. The flip side, the other, the other bookend where a 1031 tends to be superior is when the lower the amount of basis the client has, often zero basis, and the more debt they have on the real estate property they're selling tends to be when the 1031 is superior. And the, the reason why is, example, Jimmy, you bought a rental property in Dallas for a million bucks, you sold it for a million and a half. However, you've owned it for 30 years, so you've depreciated it to zero, and you have a million dollar loan on the property. If you were to put your money in a 1031, you simply need to take the million and a half and complete the exchange, you defer all your taxes. To do an OZ and defer all your taxes, you'd have to first take your million and a half and pay off a million dollar loan to the bank. You'd have a half million left over to invest in the OZ. Then you'd have to come up with another million dollars out of pocket to invest in the OZ to address your deferred unrecaptured depreciation tax. So it really depends on the client situation, both economic considerations, but also, also human considerations. And it's a small amount of time, but there are times when you can use a combination of 1031 exchanges and opportunity zones on the same transaction. Great. I think that was an awesome breakdown that both you gentlemen gave. Jay and Rob, thank you so much for that. I think that that's helpful to a lot of investors on the call today who are familiar with 1031s. Maybe they're starting to learn about OZs. Always good to compare and contrast those two programs. I want to pull Scott back in, give him another question about multifamily. That's, that's his area of expertise. So Scott, just looking at the world at large over the past 24 months or so, we've really been in a period of a lot of economic uncertainty with the COVID pandemic and the resulting recession, the imbalance in the labor market. And now the war in Ukraine is kind of making everybody a little jittery, a little bit more uncertain. Do you still like multifamily during this period of economic uncertainty? Absolutely. It really gets down to the basic fact that everybody needs a home. They need to live somewhere. And multifamily really addresses this need. And then when you look at it, at the real estate sector and where it fits traditionally, multifamily has been among the most resilient. So does well in terms of generating returns in periods of economic expansion and in times of economic uncertainty or even recession multifamily has traditionally performed well. And I would I would also say, as you're looking back through it, when we're coming out of COVID-19, it's also created a lot of shifts in lifestyle and work from home and all of that. And so that really is attractive to a lot of potential renters and has really driven up the need for that housing and for their expectations on amenities and having quality housing and really having folks really reevaluate the four walls that they're spending their time in. So I think for me, even in a climate of economic uncertainty, multifamily is still something I'm very bullish on. And particularly tying it back into opportunity zones and opportunity zone investing, multifamily is, is where it's at typically for the types of real estate assets that we see. You know, I think more than half, according to the most recent Novogratz survey, more than half of the capital raised to date has been going into funds that have at least some sort of strong residential or multifamily component. And 
bringing it into the opportunity zone communities really gives investors a chance to do well by doing good. Not only are they providing much needed housing for this country, but also they're doing it in the areas that need it most, these traditionally underserved, economically downtrodden communities. Jay, let's bring you back in now. Uh, just one more question for Jay and Rob. we got to wrap things up here pretty quick. But Jay, why aren't we seeing more real estate gains from investment properties going into opportunity zones? And in your experience, maybe I'm kind of giving away the answer. I'm leading the witness here a little bit, but does the average financial advisor know enough about opportunity zones to properly advise high net worth investors, their clients on, on that option of, of OZ investing? No, you, you, you got it. It's not just the financial advisor, it's fill in the blank advisor, mm-hmm. legal advisor, tax advisor, financial advisor, you know, spousal advisor, which whatever it is, many people just are ignorant to the opportunity. I would also add that uh, people miss one of the key elements that make opportunity zones viable for real estate exchanges, which is it's not just the capital gain from the sale of an investment property that can be invested in the OZ and realize the tax benefits. It is also the unrealized depreciation expense, at least the straight line portion of it, is also eligible. And that, that key element is what, again, a half million dollar gain and 700000 depreciation recapture expense. Most people think, well, I can invest the half million. I have to pay taxes on the seven hundred. They don't realize that all $1.2 million could go to get all the tax benefits. Another thing about depreciation is, remember, you're building brand new properties, which means you have a full depreciable schedule. You can be using multifamily as a shorter depreciable life than most. You get a bonus there. You can be using cost segregation, component depreciation to really accelerate depreciation. And you can be using bonus depreciation, which was also part of the same Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that created the OZ program. Meaning, said another simple way is, there is so much depreciation that can be passed through in the first seven, 10 year useful life of these assets that the amount of taxable rental income the investors are going to be receiving from these things are probably zero or very close to it. So there's two ways that people are unaware of how depreciation plays in and can benefit from the OZ program. A, it can be invested in the program, but B, all the depreciation from the program is also going to be tax-free, assuming you, you hold it for the required period of time. Terrific. Yeah, no, great points there, Jay. Thank you. Uh, that's really interesting about the depreciation as well there. Uh, Rob, I'm going to leave you with the final word here. We got a cut you guys loose here in a couple minutes. I got my next presenter coming on. But Rob, looking at the future here, I'm going to turn to you. Opportunity zones in 2022 and beyond. We've gone through that expiration of the 10% basis step up at the end of last year. So we're kind of looking forward to the future of the program over the next four plus years when it uh, is scheduled to sunset. How do you view that opportunity today and going forward and any additional thoughts or insights you have on opportunity zones? Yeah, I would say that it's taken too long, in my opinion, for investors to make full use of the Qualified Opportunity Zone opportunity. It got off to a little bit of a slow start. We're seeing a lot of investors utilize it now for the right reasons, not just for deferral, but for planning, long-term planning, retirement, estate planning, things that we normally would use with more traditional investments, they're benefiting from a qualified opportunity zone fund and investment in that manner. So I hope more individuals are aware of the opportunity that this provides. And my hope is also that the government, as the years go on, understands the benefit of reinvesting in challenged communities, challenged areas, and the benefit that that can lead to our society, communities, education, growth, you know, the ability to live in a community that's safe and leads to better society. So I hope that that the opportunity continues from a legislative purpose. 
Agreed. And with any hope, fingers crossed, we'll get this thing extended at some point. Well, hopefully that was helpful for you as a high net worth investor, some of the options you have and some of the considerations you should make when contemplating an opportunity zone investment, especially if you're comparing it with a Section 1031 exchange. And especially if you're a multifamily investor, this has been uh, Jay Frank with Cantor Fitzgerald, Scott Hawksworth with multifamilyinvestor.com and Rob Johnson with Realized. Thank you for attending today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you, gentlemen. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.